the sun was coming down and hitting the grass. And I said, Brian, this place is perfect. And he says, Bill, we can't build it here. And I said, well, you know, why the hell not? He says, Bill, you're in the wrong country. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we had wandered off uh, over the border into Central African Republic. Hello and welcome to Blue Sky Thinking, a mind-expanding podcast from Globe Trender that explores the bold ideas that are pushing our boundaries and broadening our horizons. I am your host, travel journalist and entrepreneur, Jenny Southern, and every episode I will be going on a conversational journey with the innovators and visionaries who are shaping the future of travel. My guest today is Bill Bensley, a world-renowned hotel designer and landscape architect who grew up on a farm in California, studied architecture at Harvard, and has gone on to conceive over 200 hospitality projects in 50 countries. Before we start this chat, I just want to say that this week's episode of Blue Sky Thinking is sponsored by Kayak. Kayak is a travel search engine that allows you to compare prices for flights, hotels and car hire, meaning you don't have to jump around from one website to another making test bookings like I used to do. There are a lot of great features on Kayak for frequent travellers like you and I, so I just want to take a few moments to tell you about some of my favourites. If you're looking at a variety of flights to a certain destination and you'll know roughly when you'll travel but it's not locked in, there's an option to compare multiple departure and return dates. This will show you if it's cheaper or maybe more convenient to fly a day or two earlier or a couple of days later. You can also filter your flight search. For me, that's usually direct flights only if I can. I like to avoid too much of an early start or a very late arrival, so I adjust the takeoff and landing time. I've been researching a family holiday to Crete recently and these features have been really useful because my daughter is young and we don't like to fly at awkward times of the day, but we also need to keep costs down. Finally, once you have the options in front of you, you can compare flight prices from numerous online travel agents as well as the airlines themselves. So for your next trip, start your search on Kayak. Bill is the founder and creative director of design studio Bensley, which he established in Bangkok in the 80s when he was just 29. As well as working with many major hotel brands, he also has his own Bensley collection of hotels, which are found in extraordinary locations around the world. Some of Bill's most memorable travel experiences include swimming with piranha in the Amazon, chasing herds of yak on the Russian-Mongolian border, and completing a pan-Burma expedition by hot air balloon. Now in his 60s, not only is Bill a talented painter, but a powerful advocate for conservation and philanthropy. At a recent exhibition of his work at the Four Seasons Hotel in Bangkok, he raised over $250,000 for the Shintamani Foundation he set up in Cambodia to support local communities. Welcome to Blue Sky Thinking, Bill. Well, thank you. I believe you are just back from a recent big trip. Tell us a bit about some of the places you've been. Well, I, I started out this uh, this one-month-long trip. I started out in... Um, Istanbul, and then we went down to Bodrum, where we are employed now to draw a attended camp on the Aegean Sea that has ancient Grecian remnants of their civilization. And we're going to do a tented camp there for about uh, oh, 50 tents. It's a beautiful site, great beach. There's no way to get to it by, by vehicle. You can only get to it by boat. But what we're going to do is, is design this after the Ottoman Empire, okay, a mobile tents that they used to use tents in order to take their troops and their, and their, um, their high commanders keep them very comfortable in very lavish tents. So that's, that's, is the inspiration for it. After that, went back to, to Istanbul. Then we went over to Azerbaijan. These are places I had never been before. I had no idea where we were going. And I, I purposely didn't read up on it because that's the way I like to travel. I like to have surprises along the way. So we went to Azerbaijan in a place called Baku. And Baku is in an amazing city. It's like, like Singapore meets uh, Singapore meets Las Vegas meets uh, uh, Dubai, 
with no tourists, have absolutely no tourists whatsoever. And it's on the it's on the Caspian Sea. And of course, we ate caviar while we were there. And then we went into the mountains, and because that's the northern, the northern portion of Azerbaijan are the Caucasus Mountains. From there, we drove to the west to a country called Georgia, and following the Caucasus Mountains, and that was really the heart of our trip. That was my favorite part. Was a, was, and we went to a city called Tbilisi, which really is amazing art scene and bar scene and music scene. And it was just uh, just wonderful to be able to explore the museums there. Then, then afterwards, after that, then we went towards Iraq, Iran rather, into a place called Ar- Armenia. And that was rather, um, how to say, war-torn, but still the art scene there was pretty darn good. Um, but that was a full four weeks of traveling. Oh, <laughs> and I forgot to tell you, but after Turkey, we went to Montenegro for the first time in my life. So now that that took us up to now I've been to 99 countries, only one more to hit the big the big uh, the big mark of 100. Now, you always seem to be working on all sorts of incredible projects. And there's one in particular that I'd love to know more about right now. And that's the one in the Republic of the Congo. When is that opening? Tell us all about it. That I'm really, really uh, happy about this project. I'm really excited about this project. There's there's two parts of the Congo. There's the Belgian Congo and there's the French Congo, and they are worlds apart from each other. Although they're right across from the Congo River from each other, Kinshasa, the capital of the Belgian Congo, and what we're working on the French side. And the French side is much safer, and if you go. Uh, if you fly two hours to the north of the French capital, two hours to the north by private plane, you come to a place called uh, Kamara, and that is a real small landing strip. And our site is in the middle of the of the world's greatest and, and only remaining wilderness left on Earth. Uh, and this is a quote by David Attenborough. And we are doing a camp there. In fact, we're doing five camps there. And each camp has four tents. And these tents are raised eight meters off the ground. And you know why, Jenny? Because of the elephants. They were they are everywhere. And they'll push down anything and everything that gets in its way. So we have to raise everything out of the reach of the elephants. So our guests will climb up climb up a set of stairs, and then they'll stay on this high level on the, during most of their time during the, and even the restaurants and everything's up at that high level. So you'll be able to look down to the, to the, the forest elephants. And uh, interesting thing that I just learned in the last year was that there are two types of elephants in, in there's the savanna elephants, which are really big. And then there's these much smaller, darker elephants that live in the, in the, in the heart of the rainforest. And they're much smaller, but they're also pretty darn angry. So you you don't want to piss them off. (laughs) So we were working in this tri-national park in the north of uh, French Congo. And there is a park which shares borders with the Cameron and then the Central African Republic. And then to the south, then that's the French Congo. So there's this huge park there, which is basically uninhabited. So the first time I went there is to try to find the find sites for these for these camps, and I walked. Um, it took me three days to to get where I wanted to go, but I was walked 52 kilometers in three days, and then sub, much much of that was in water up to my knees. Um, so it's really hard going. But once we got there. What, where the where the, most of the gorillas are, there's way more gorillas than there are there than there are in Rwanda or anywhere else. So there's something like in just the places that I went to, there was 90 different families, and not one tourist there. Nobody. That sounds absolutely extraordinary. And what inspired you to investigate this destination as a place to uh, build a camp? Well, uh, you know, I've always always wanted for 20 years now is to build 
a, a safari camp or some sort of a camp in, in deep, dark Africa because the Congo is the most challenging place that I've ever tried to build something because people don't make furniture there. They don't make tents. They don't make fixtures. They don't, everything has to be imported. And to get it to our site, for example, from the capital, it's a two-hour charter flight. And then from that, from that little strip, then we have to drive for two days on a, a narrow, a very narrow uh, roadway that runs to the north. And that roadway is in the middle of the forest. And for two days, we did not see another car. And we, we saw gorillas going back and forth across the road. And we saw elephants on the side of the road. We saw um, chimpanzees, et cetera. But we did not see another car and we did not see another person. Then once we got to the camp, we got to, we, then, we, then we, we met up with a tributary of the Congo River. We got in that boat and we took a boat for six hours again to the north uh, through a motorized boat with no roof on it and so forth. Then from there, then we started to walk 52 kilometers. So you can imagine the difficulties, the, the logistics of building anything that has any sort of comfort. In, because in that national park, that tri-national park, and I think it's a very good thing, we're not allowed to use even one motorized vehicle. Everything has to come in by hand. So we're working with the Ba'aka people, the, it, it, formerly known as the pygmies. So, and I'm six foot four, right? <laughs> and the work with these guys is hysterical. They are the friendliest people on the, on the face of the planet. They, have, they laugh at everything. And, uh, and they carry all my stuff and they're helping me through the bushes. And when I'm falling in the mud, they're all laughing like crazy. <laughs> and it, it's, it, it's, it's a riot. It's a riot working. But how we're going to finish this hotel, I really don't know. But uh, what we're, we keep on trying. Well, I absolutely love your ambition and your vision. Um, what is your timeline? When are you hoping to, to unveil this place? We're hoping to unveil this place the end of next year. Okay. But uh, on, honestly, Jenny, I'm not sure how we're going to do it. And how are guests going to access it? Are they going to be parachuting in? or? <laughs> yeah, that would be easier, actually. Um, we, what, what I discovered is, the funny story is that when I was, there's, a, there's one fellow there that has a small camp, and it's a camp of rangers that are, that are controlling some of the poachers that are in. That's the whole reason we're doing this is because it's going to generate more money in order to, to, to be able to afford more rangers to stop the poachers, very similar to my Shintamani in, in Cambodia. And the funny story was is that there's a small post there, and it's run by a British fella. And Brian, I mean, Brian and I were, were walking through the forest, and I'm trying to find these five positions for these tents. For these, for these camps. And I found a, a beautiful place that was up on a slope and there was a, a river down below and there was a big opening, which is not many openings in the rainforest. There's a bit of an opening there. So sun was coming down and hitting the grass. And I said, Brian, this is, place is perfect. And he says, Bill, we can't build here. And I said, well, you know, why the hell not? He says, Bill, you're in the wrong country. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we had wandered off uh, over the border into Central African Republic, and we were about a kilometer into that into that country, and, and you know the, the the Baaka people didn't know. There's no fences or don't stop. You know, there's there's no borders there at all. But on the on the GPS, we could see. So we moved another kilometer or so, but we still found that same river, and we we now we're placing it in the proper country. That's the first time that's ever happened to me. Um, so to answer your question, how are we going to get there? Now, that little river that we found, now we are doing some very light dredging. And so that we'll be able to get a very, a very a dugout canoe with a very shallow draft. We'll be able to bring guests in, in by, by way of boat, uh, by boat to boat to boat, rather than having them walk that 50 kilometers in and out. Because that, most, most guests won't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Some will, but some most most won't. Will that be an option for some guests to do the the trek as part of the experience? Absolutely, you can do the trek the whole way. You can do the boat the whole way. Um, there, right? Um, have you ever seen that that um, 
BBC production. It was called Our World. I don't think I have actually. No, it's uh, it's all about different places around the world, and it's narrated by, hosted by David Attenborough. There's one. There's one series that he did was on forest, and it was on rainforest. And there is a beautiful place in the rainforest that they call Belly By. And David Attenborough clearly didn't walk 52 kilometers, but he was dropped in by helicopter in the middle of that, of, of this Belly By. It's a clearing in the in the the forest, and this forest clearing is about a, a kilometer by two kilometers, and it's cleared because the elephants have been going there for a millennium, eating the salts and eating the the minerals that are in those soils. And at the same time, it's cocktail hour every day at five o'clock. At the same time, the gorillas come and join the elephants and eat the same thing. So it's a very interesting place to see both of these both of these huge mammals enjoying a bit of mud, right, together. Uh, and that place called Belly Bay, well, that is our site. Well, I'm very excited about the progress of the project and maybe one day even getting out to, to do a stay. I mean, it sounds absolutely extraordinary. So good luck. Thank you. Well, I think we're going to need it on this one, Jenny. As an adult, travel clearly plays a hugely important part in your life. But what were some of the most formative travel experiences for you when you were growing up? When we were growing up, my dad, mom and dad were um, were both born in Oxford, England. Uh, my sister's English, my brother's Canadian. So as a, tra- as a, and I'm the only Yank of the family, but as a, as a family, we used to travel every summer extensively. So one of the probably the best trips that we did was from Cal. We lived in California in, on a small farm. I think you mentioned that, and we would go up as far as the Yellowstone National Park. We'd go up to to British Columbia, any place where the fishing where the fish is good. Because my dad was a great angler, and 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 as am I now. I'm going to Mongolia next week to to fish for for two and a half weeks. But uh, but any place where the fish are biting, that's where we went. You were born in California, as as we mentioned, to English immigrant parents, and your father was a, a research scientist for NASA. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't call him a scientist. He was more of a research prototype mechanic, so that he would be handed the plans for a lot of the different parts that went up into the space. The Gemini program, in fact, is his claim to fame is he actually made the toilet. <laughs> he made the toilet that actually went to the moon, physically made the toilet. I absolutely love that. Very important part. <laughs> Essential part. <laughs> yeah, he could make anything. He made his own dentures. He made the the uh, mom's jewelry. He could make everything. I love that. And tell us a, l- a little bit about your mother. Um, mom was, from, was born in Old Marston, in, uh, just outside of and she was everybody's friend, uh, just the nicest woman on the face of the planet, um, and took took care of us. But she, like most mums in the in the sixties and seventies, never worked. And what was your childhood like? Childhood was really happy. You know, I, I grew up in in the midst of of an orange tree, an orange grove, and a walnut grove, and you know, it, we were had plenty to eat, although. And the, the the school systems in California were were, were very very good. Um, I had I walked maybe four four or five miles to school yeah. every day, but that was normal, you know. And the, the first day at school, you'd always ride your bicycle, and by the second day, that bicycle had been stolen. But but that was part for the course. Then you had to walk the rest of the year, but. Uh, it was very, very happy, sports-oriented and uh, lots and lots of friends. And, you know, the people that I graduated from high school with, I went to kindergarten with. So that that means a lot to grow up with a big community for the entire time. No, there was not very much, no transitory trans- people moving in and out. That didn't happen in our neighborhood. It was families that had been there forever. And growing up on a farm... I imagine that inspired a, a love and appreciation of nature. Oh, very much so. And, and also, it taught us how to be self-sufficient, 
right? So there's five of us and basically we we fed ourselves and, and many of our neighbors at the same time with honey and apricots and oranges and peaches and apples and broccoli, everything you could possibly think of, quail, rabbit, uh, ducks, <laughs> everything we had we 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 had on our farm and plenty of it. How did your upbringing help or hinder you on your journey to becoming a hotel designer, an entrepreneur? Well, I think that you know just just the the idea of being able to understand how things grow and how and 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 why we should respect why we should re- respect Mother Nature and how. The earth moves and how the wind blows and so forth. So it's really simple things like that. Give, give certainly gave me a foot up with my architecture, right? So that when when I'm drawing architecture now, I, I, I first look at the place where we're we're building, and it's and and I try to very much understand the idiosyncrasies of that site. And and once you got once you begin to understand um, that the beauty of nature that you that you work with that's half the battle if not all the battle and I think that's the, that makes the difference in very much in in our projects yeah is that I start first as a landscape architect and then then work at it as an architect then I come back in and fluff the pillows as an interior designer yeah because a lot of your projects are in these really quite pristine uh, wilderness locations, as you've already spoken about with the Republic of the Congo, but you've also got this incredible camp in Cambodian rainforest. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Um, And we're going to talk a bit more about those projects um, later in this episode. But I'd like to ask you, what did you learn about money growing up? And what have you discovered since? What did I learn about money? That's interesting that it's very hard to come by. (laughs) <laughs> uh and to be uh to be careful with it um not to borrow it right i, I think you know, i've never borrowed a penny the most important thing that i can i can teach that i can suggest is that when i first started out as an architect i didn't work for myself i worked for an american company and like most architectural firms we had to draw um, timesheets, and we had to put down every day how many hours we spent for this for this project, and how many hours we spent for that project. And inevitably, that I would get to a point where the project was wonderful, and the the damn accountant would say, "Bill, you have got to stop now because we have no, we have no more billable hours." And and I thought, well, shoot, you know, I I hate this because. I, I, we're not doing the best job we can. So I, when I opened up my own firm and when I'm 29, I said, the last thing we're going to have in this office is timesheets. So, and for now 40 years now, we worked without timesheets. And I think, I swear that is the best way. We do, we don't care about how much money we spend. And what we what we care about is the quality of the of what we're doing and make the job with the money that they our client has and with the time that they, our client has the best possible job we can do, and and that for me has been the best best thing I've ever done is to forget about the money. And that's really interesting. Yeah, just to forget about it. Don't worry about it, and it'll come. That's that's fantastic advice. Would you say your your feelings about money, the the lessons you learned about about money when you were a child, um, are still the same today? Um, yeah, we were, you know, we were never, you know, we a poor, you know, we were a poor family, but we were really happy. But we never lacked for anything. You know, I had one pair of pants per year, and I got those on the day that school started. Uh, but it was it was never something that was lacking, and you know I went to Harvard, but that was on a full grant. You know somebody else paid for it, and and same with my college and so forth. I was lucky enough to be able to get grants, and there was lots in that lots. I think probably there are more available when I was going to school than than they are today. So I was very lucky in that sense. 
But it has never been a priority to me, Jenny. Never. So, so money isn't the number one motivating factor. Hell in no. What you do. Hell no. <laughs> what What would you say does drive you? What's the number one goal or force or north star? Um, well, the north star for many years has been trying to to build a project to build to build re a really good work build really good work. And then recently, it's been um, the last three years, I want to become a really good artist. And, and in doing so, I want to be able to continue to help a lot of as many people as we can, in as many ways as we can, it, by way of conservation and education and, and housing in Cambodia, because that's a very, very poor place. The first time I met you was at a hotel in London. Mm -hmm. um, I, I interviewed you in a suite and I remember that on the floor were all these amazing portraits of people. Oh, yeah. I remember that too. So tell us more about the art you do and what motivates you to paint the people you meet. Um, you know, in, in all of the hotels that we design, there's always a, a huge, a big backstory. So I just, what motivates me is is that I, I think I'm an innate storyteller. Um, and along the way, no matter where I go, whether it's Azerbaijan or, or Georgia or wherever, I'm constantly sketching and taking notes and being observant. I don't take photographs, I sketch. And if you sketch, then you really see something. If you take photographs, it goes into the bank and it's one of 20,000 on your phone and it's really quite meaningless. But if you sketch something, you can really see it and you really understand it because you have to feel the form of something. So that's, that's why I, I sketch is because I want to understand what's around me better than, taking a, better than just taking a snapshot. Then, then with those sketches, then I take those back and I boil them and I, I, I how to say, boil them and I, I Sometimes I do collages. Sometimes I get to, um, and I remember the stories. I write down the stories, and then I get to a place where I can build, where I can um, paint very large oil paints or, or acrylic paint paintings. And the last year, 2022, I, I had my first show, and within a month, we sold a quarter million dollars worth of paintings. And then last month, I had my first show at MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Bangkok. And we sold within 13 hours. We sold out the entire show of 38 paintings. And we, we, we made $300,000 for the Shintamani Foundation. I, every single penny goes towards the foundation. So it was a fantastic community that I have, that I'm associated with here. And we're help, they help a lot. And we have Every single painting, which is kind of interesting, is that every single painting that was sold is has a specific purpose. So, for example, one painting of a gorilla in 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 the Congo pays for two houses. Because we can build a house in in a simple house in Cambodia for something like three thousand two hundred dollars, which is raised off the ground. It's one one house which is four meters by eight meters with a proper roof and a lockable door, etc. No bathroom, but that's that's a hell of a lot better than sleeping underneath what most a lot of people do is they sleep underneath the, a plastic sheet with holes in it. Right? So it's a big step above. So we're building 21 of those. We're building I'm, I'm buying a, a school bus because it's a long, far, far for a lot of the kids to go to school. So they don't go to school. So I'm buying a, a bus in order to get our village to, to the schools. We paid for the, Shinda, uh, the Wildlife Alliance with that money for the whole year because we have a, I have a, a private army with about 115 people. They're all ex-Cambodian um, army, and they carry AK-47s every single day in the Cardamon National Forest. So we're paying for those people, rather than the government paying, we're paying, paying for those people in order to protect 
the forest and to keep the, the poachers at bay somewhat. It doesn't always work. Is it true that your team doesn't design hotels using computers? Is everything hand-drawn? Um, the, you know, I get, I get asked for positions in our, my studio probably once a day or several times a week. And um, the, the, the young people are, they come in looking for jobs. The first thing I do is I give them a piece of paper give them a pencil and I say, sit down and there's a specific Ganesha in my, in my office. I say, draw that Ganesha. And I can tell within five minutes by the way that they handle that pencil, if they're going to be a good designer or not. So, but is it, is it true that we don't use a computer? No, we do use computers. We have to, we have to produce our work in CAD, but anybody who wants to be creative it's a prerequisite at Bensley to be able to draw beautifully because if you can't draw with your hand, then how the hell can you design it within something much more complicated like a computer? It doesn't work. Do you, th do you find that young people have this skill or is, is it something that's being lost? Very much so, especially, uh, I hate to say it, especially Americans. Americans can't draw their way out of a wet paper bag. Um, the the uh, the Thai people and Balinese and in Indonesians, where I have my other office, they they have a much better hand generally. The Japanese can draw somewhat, but I, I still say that perhaps no more than ten percent of the people that I interview can really draw well. Let's talk about your personal life. You have a husband who is also your business partner. What's it like working with the person you love? Um, you know, with, with Chirichai, uh, nothing has ever been a problem. Everything is, 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 is uh, how to say, it's all a laugh. <laughs> so no matter what we do or where we are, even the worst, most stressful situations, we sit back and you know and have a laugh and, and that's the key of life is to be able to share it with somebody who who retains a sense of humor and in Chirichai certainly does and that's what I love about him is, is that he uh, never even in even in real weird situations he never gets never gets upset in fact in thirty five years now we've never had an argument. That is very impressive. Um, where did you first meet? Well, we, we uh, the week, the very week that I moved to Bangkok in 1989, we met at a bar downtown. Um, within about 10 minutes of my arrival, and that was it. <laughs> it was, it was fate, right? And I could tell, you know, that the, you know, we were dating for about oh, a month or two months or so. But I could tell just right away that this was the person that 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 he's very calm, and and I'm I'm more much more phonetic at times. But so I, I could tell that he was the, the right person that that would be the antithesis of myself. When did you get married? Um, I think I forget now in the '90s. Sometimes when whenever I think Canada was one of the first places where where gay marriages were legal. I think. So we got married in Canada, sort of one of the first first couples there. And was that recognized when you moved back to, to Thailand? Um, I think, well, for, <laughs> for designers and certainly interior designers in, in, uh, in Thailand, it's sort of illegal to be straight. <laughs> <laughs> I myself am married to a woman. Um, and Globetrender recently published a trend report about the future of queer travel. So I'm really interested to learn more about the lives of LGBTQ plus people working in the industry. Mm -hmm. What do you enjoy about being gay? And do you think queerness can be linked with creativity? Yeah, it's, it's probably not the correct, politically correct thing to say, but I, I can't help but think that... You know, being gay perhaps gives me a foot up, and in in being being as creative as people say I am, 
Uh, I, maybe it does. But, you know, then there's Picasso, right? Who was the, the straightest man ever, and he was probably one of the most creative. So I, I don't know. I don't know. It um, certainly with interior design, you know, you're, you're when, with interior design, you're you're rather expected to. If you're good, you're expected to be gay. But I'm not sure if that's really fair or not. Is there something in not being conventional that allows you to maybe think more freely or in a more radical way? Maybe as a, a creative person, you you feel you can go beyond conventions in a way that you certainly do with your with your design projects for example uh i'm not i'm not sure um if i lived in if i lived in azerbaijan um i would say yes for sure but i live in thailand and um where on you turn on the television and you know, 95% of the men on that you see on the television are screaming queens, right? So they're, they're the most, how to say, Thailand is perhaps the most accepting and most loving of the LGBT community, perhaps of anywhere in the world. So in here, here, I don't particularly feel special or yeah, it's not it's, for the last forty years. It's never, never been a subject, um, and and there's no exclusions or inclusions. It's just the way everybody is. No one even talks about, you know, being gay. It's not. It's not an issue. It never has been an issue, right? So it's it's wonderful. I I think that's really refreshing and comforting to hear for many people. You know, Thailand, you know what it means? What does it mean? Free land. Free land. Free land, yeah. Thailand has never been colonized. Yeah. Right? And, and, and it's, it's free in more than one way. Exactly. <laughs> I just described. You're renowned for being a radical thinker. Tell us about your vision for World Wild in China, which I understand has been put on hold due to the pandemic, but if built, would probably be the most extraordinary resort on earth. Well, well, thank you for that. If built, it just might be, and it might it might come back onto track. I have, I've got to talk to those guys next next month. But we, a long story short, we had a. Um, very good clients of ours bought this huge piece of property, something like, oh, 3,000 hectares of land and in, in the south of China near the Vietnam border. And uh, they said, Mr. Bill, Mr. Bill, we want to build a zoo. And I said, geez, Eddie, do you really want to build a zoo? Zoo's, zoo's not, you know, not real great here in, in, uh, in, in China. So I said, let, let me, give me a couple of weeks and I'll think about it. And then during that time, I went to see seven or eight of the most famous zoos in, in, in China and up in Beijing and all, all over the place. And the, the, what I saw was overcrowding. I saw horrible situations for Siberian wolves in a pen that was two meters by four meters. And the, the, it was just appalling. So I came back and met with these guys and I said, okay, well, we've got... 3,000 hectares. The only way I'm going to do this, you guys, is that if we give 95% of that, that 3,000 hectares to the animals to run freely without, without carnivores, to run freely, and we, we give 5% for, uh, for people. And so the people then would occupy the series of hotels all the way around it and I, did, I designed seven hotels and everybody was on board from Capella to Four Seasons to Marriott. To, everybody was on board. Everyone was totally like, like a single loaded corridor so that everybody had two places to sleep. They had a sleeping porch and you could sleep inside because I wanted you to be able to hear the, the noises of the animals during the, the calls of the calls of the wild during the evening. So we had a sleeping porch and an indoor on every single one. And then we got that real close to the to the 95%. And then we then we created um, 
three different zones, Australia, Asian zone where most Asian animals were, were and then Australian zone and then an African, of course. And without carnivores, we, we figured out with a zoologist who was on my staff for three years straight. We, and it was, it was an English zoologist. He was fantastic. So we figured out exactly what the, what the animals were that we needed and that we knew where those were, those animals were, that we could transplant from the overcrowded zoos in all around China rather than bringing them in from, from Africa or bringing them in from Australia. So it was, about, it was about recycling the animals, if you will, and giving them much better homes. And then we put a lot of, lot of research into the medical, uh, the, the animal hospitals and the veterinary aspect of it, and we planned that all out. And then COVID happened. <laughs> so, but it might still come back. And so, so some people, uh, we called it the human zoo. Because it was 5% were locked up within this very small part. And then the rest of the animals were, were roaming free. But we would put um, salt licks and we put um, lights near the hotels. And then that would draw the, the hoofed animals at least to closer to the hotels so that they could be seen easier. And so you wouldn't be able to get in a Jeep and drive through the... You could, you could do that as well. Okay. You could do that. There was, there was, I had, I had specific routes where you could get into a drive and go on safari and such because yeah. it's a huge piece of property. But yes, you could do that. But basically, the vast majority, and we had trains also that would, that would circumnavigate this entire, this entire park and stop at nine different locations. And each of the locations were, um, each of the locations would tell a specific, a specific um, a story to tell a specific meaning. And it was very critical in that, you know, probably seven years ago till today that the Chinese have, have stopped the policy, the one baby policy. So now that, and we were assuming that had we were on track, all of the kids, this, there's a big boom now for kids in China and they would have been between 10 and 12. So these, these stops on the train, they, were, they are um, designed to capture the imagination of 10 and 12-year-olds in order so that, so that, you know, hey, daddy, maybe pangolin isn't what we need to have on our dinner plate tonight, right? So that the, and, and if we felt that if we hit, if we, if we got the kids to understand First, that that would be the most effective way to spread the message that wildlife um, is not is 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 perhaps we shouldn't have that within our, our current diets. And what will it cost to get this project off the ground? Would you say uh, this is a two billion dollar project? And is there anything else like it on Earth? Not that I know of. No one's ever said that before. <laughs> I haven't heard of anything like it. Uh, you know, the human zoo, not, not too many of those. But, but what a, you know, I, I, God, I really hope it works. How do you go about creating hotel projects in wilderness environments with minimal intervention? First, it's all about understanding the idiosyncrasies of the site. And that meaning that, when I when I have a when I start a, a site, a new site, I'm gonna I'll go and set up a tent there, and I stay there and draw on a big table. And sometimes I'll sleep there overnight, but I'll go and stay there so that I can understand where the sun's coming up, where the where you know where the rain comes from, where the winds are coming from, the how the site is draining. Know, how what plants are doing well, what plants, what trees are doing well, what exactly is on the site, if there's any bees, if there's any insects, the entomology of the site, et cetera. So that is the first step. Um, and then, then a real key, the next step is to be able to, especially in a forested area, is to be able to create architecture which suits your needs but is small. And why small is because it's small is easier to fit with 
between the trees, right? So that if we have if we have most buildings now in 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 resort architecture, you know, some of them can be fifty meters by twenty meters and so forth. That that would kill a forest. So most of my buildings are to the scale of four meters by five meters, which is about this, this distance between trees within a forest. Mm-hmm. So if, you can, if we can fit between, so that's number one, small footprints. And number two is don't change the topology of the site. Don't change, don't do any grading. You know, beautiful sites have been draining properly for, for millennium. Right, have been have been draining themselves perfectly for a long time, but us as engineers and architects, the first thing we want to do is we want to cut a slope and we want to make flat areas to make flat buildings, and and then then we deal with the problem of the water that falls on there, and we build these big culverts and we we divert the water out and so forth. Well, that's the worst thing possible. So it number two is is to is to don't grade the site, let it be, work with it. So many of our projects are up on stilts, which allows the natural drainage of the land underneath underneath the buildings. I think that's, yeah, really, really interesting. And I think that's something that more hotel architects should be considering, especially as post-pandemic, so many people want to now experience wilderness locations. But obviously, this needs to be handled so carefully because the very presence of tourists and the very presence of hotels can destroy those locations. So I'm glad you're creating this this blueprint for doing it better. What is your vision for sustainable travel? Um, And is it really possible to achieve? I know this is something that you've put a hell of a lot of thought into. Well, what, what is sustainable travel? What is it? Question to you. Um, I guess it's travel that can continue without damaging the the planet. You know, it could continue in that way for, say, 500 years or a thousand years. And obviously, most travel isn't sustainable in that way um, because there's a finite amount of fossil fuel, for example, that powers the planes. And the amount of concrete that's required to build hotels, you know, is such a huge drain on water and is such a huge emitter of carbon that it fundamentally doesn't feel sustainable. My dream project, if you got a minute, my dream project is to to be able to build a hotel which is 100% from recycled material or from material that's actually right on site, for example, um, from a mud building, for example, or packed earth buildings. But to build even down to the sewer pipes and so forth, I know it's possible, but I've never been able to have a client uh, allow me to do that. And and you you couple that with being offline. So it's it's so darn easy um, in principle to be able to generate enough electricity by way of, by way of power and by way of water movement, et cetera, wind and such, to be able to do a small, a, a, even a big resort by way of the the, the by way of the energy generating tools that we already have in our in our toolkit. But I've never been able to get anyone to. to to fund that. So if you know anyone, Jenny, that send them my way. Yeah, any of our Blue Sky listeners who want to help, then give us a shout. So you've also written a white paper on sustainable travel. No, it's called Sensible Sustainable Solutions. And this is when uh, the word sustainable became a, a, a super buzzword. Right? <laughs> this is about five years ago. I, I I woke up one morning and 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 said, "Well, I'm going to go to the office today and look at all of the building standards that I have because I've been doing re- resorts and hotels for probably 50 different hotel companies all over the world and I, and and I have all of these standards. These architects when the when you you start a project, the hotel company will send you their standards that tells you how big their doors should be and what the minimum width of the corridor should be and et cetera, et cetera. 
And I went and looked at them, and basically none of them had anything to do with anything environmental or anything sustainable or nothing. So I I wrote this. I started out as 100 pages, and I boiled it down to about 15, and then illustrated it so that it was really super easy to understand. And I distributed it to about 850 hotel companies. And the response that I got was fantastic. And they said, yes, we've taken your your paper and we're putting it into our building standards. Or yes, we've taken part of it. Or, you know, yeah, we got us thinking about it. And then within two years, three years, the vast majority of hotel companies were reissuing their building standards with ideas about sustainability. Simple things like cross-ventilation or 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 um, you know, putting the glass within the shade and, you know, really simple stuff and using solar energy, et cetera, et cetera. But at least that got a lot of people thinking about it. So I'm, I'm happy that worked out. Bill, where can people download this white paper if they want to, to get hold of it? You, you can certainly look at my website, bensley.com. There's a, a place there in, in which you can download it. Perfect. The new buzzword is regenerative travel. So I, I, I like to think that what we're doing with Shintamani Wild and, and certainly Shintamani Bensley Collection and so forth is regenerative in that um, while, while our, our camp, for example, is a thousand, a thousand hectares of land, what we're really looking after in that in that part of the forest is twenty thousand hectares of land, by way of this this private private army, which is and that money of that is generated by fifteen tents, and those those tents, you know, they're beautiful tents, and it's all inclusive, and it's much massage and wine, et cetera, for two thousand something dollars per night. But that gives us enough money in order to pay for this private army, which keeps the poachers and the illegal loggers at bay. So staying in that property, the Shintamani Wild, directly protects the money that you spend directly protects that that piece of land Absolutely. and the wildlife there. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the only reason that I'm I'm involved in the project is to be able to do that, that little bit of conservation that we can do. Tell us about your other new hotel, the Shintamani Mustang in Nepal. Oh, the Shintamani Mustang. Wow, what a cool site that is. That just came into our lap about uh, uh, last year. And the Mustang is a very high valley. It's to the north of Nepal, and it sort of dovetails with the Tibetan Valley. And it is a kingdom which has been closed to visitors for hundreds of years, but it's been open about the last five years or so. It, the, the kingdom charges you charges us something like you know, $300 uh, just to enter into that. But it's like entering into a society which still operates on the principles of a thousand years ago. There's no electricity, there's no telephones, there's no, there's no anything of any modern convenience, right? The, the houses are built up on, on high stilts with walls down below. The, the, in the evening, the cows and the sheep and the goat come back and, and, and stay underneath the house and they provide the heat that comes up through the floor to heat people upstairs, right? <laughs> That's their heating, right? So it's a friendly people, uh, and, and the type of architecture is super simple, but it, it's so holy in a way. It's all all Buddhist. Uh, it's a Buddhist country, and so and it's very safe. A lot of pe- a lot of people still live in caves up there, uh, which is wonderful. But it's a place that has virtually zero tourism. So we are the first. Uh, we're the first um, comfortable hotel in the Mustang Valley, and now I'm working on uh, adventure programs. It's going to be a five day minimum uh, stay, and we'll take you to see the best of all, all of the architecture, the Zong, the Zong, the 
or the temples up there are are wonderful and we'll be able to 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 share our, our experiences with the artisans and such and at the same time we're going to have a, we have a foundation there which will help kids get to school etc cetera, etc cetera. so the same principles that we're doing in in Cambodia will apply to that that very poor area of Mustang north of Nepal Let's do some blue sky thinking. Tell mm-hmm. us about one of your most audacious ideas. Wow. Yeah, one of the one of the most audacious ideas that actually was edu- was executed was this new project that we've just finished here in Kauai where I, I love train travel and and I and I as I mentioned earlier, is I would love to do a project which is entirely recycled. And so one day I was traveling to the old airport here in Bangkok and I was looking down from the highway and there's a whole field of rusting carriages, train carriages. And I thought, well, God, that's that's a good resource. Why don't we use those? So we we I proposed to my client to to make the hotel out of used carriages rusty carriages and some of them had these big ficus growing all over like Angkor Wat all, all, over the and so we we the my client says yes that's an audacious, audacious idea Mr. Bill but let's do it anyways and so we've opened it and it's been running now for for nine months and travel and leisure last week got gave us one of the best best award for resort in, in in Thailand. So I'm very, very proud. Now we are almost at the end of this episode of Blue Sky Thinking, but I wanted to finish by asking you what you think luxury travel will look like in 2040. I I really hope that that luxury travel is all about a greater understanding of the place that you're in. You know, I, I've just come from Armenia and, and and Georgia and Azerbaijan. And, for example, the, the Four Seasons that I went to in Baku, it had nothing to do, nothing to do with that place. It looked like it could have been in Ireland. It looked like it could have been in Des Moines, Iowa. I've stayed there too. I know. Yeah. Oh, you have? Okay. Yeah, I know what yeah, you mean. Yeah, you have, yeah. And, and I, I hope that it becomes a requirement, not necessarily a requirement, but I hope that the most successful hotels um, understand better than they do now that people travel not just to put a head on a bed, but to understand the people of where they're traveling to better. So to be able to tell the story, even if it's just a story about there's a a nursery school next door, and these are the these are the paintings that these kids did this week, right? That there's, you know, that there's that there's a Caspian, that there's a, a, a sturgeon farm behind the hotel. Go and visit it, you know, and just to be able to celebrate the place that you're in, rather than celebrating things that you can see everywhere around the world the gucci the you know the the louis vuitton the four seasons and so forth those sort of things have no interest in my life right so i i i hope that it becomes more important to be location oriented Thank you so much, Bill. That's been an incredibly insightful and inspiring conversation. Um, And I want to just summarize with a few takeaways that I've noted down, which are build small and don't change the topography and use tourism to support local communities sketch don't take photos and I am absolutely (laughs) that person that fills up my phone with thousands of photos that I can never possibly uh, look back through um, because there are just so many of them so I I really really want to to start doing some drawing and to do to look at the world in a different way with a pen and paper Um, and I think that's something anyone can do and then finally um, do good work and the money will come um, I think that's a really, really important lesson for people to think about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Concentrate on quality. That's it. Thank you. I've learned so much. Um, I really appreciate your time, Bill. 
Thank you for listening to Blue Sky Thinking with Jenny Southern. Before you go, I want to give you a special discount code for our Premium Vault newsletter, which explores emerging travel trends on a weekly basis. Some of the trends we have explored in recent months include survival scenarios, new age wellness and wilderness over-tourism. And what's great is that as an annual subscriber, you get access to all this content in our trend library. So if you would like 50% off an annual Vault subscription, use discount code BLUESKYTHINKINGALPHA as one word during checkout. Just visit globetrender.com vault to get signed up. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe to Blue Sky Thinking so it's stored in your podcast library, making future episodes easily discoverable. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, keep your head in the clouds and embrace the power of blue sky thinking.